We're going to look today at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the missions offering is for Christmas, and certainly missionaries need Christmas money as well, and all that you give will go to our missionaries. I was reading something. I didn't have a joke today. I normally try and have one, but reasons that God created Eve. I thought these were good. God was worried that Adam would frequently become lost in the big garden because he wouldn't ask for directions. God knew Adam would never go out and buy himself a new fig leaf to wear, so Eve needed to buy clothing for him. God knew Adam would never remember which night to put the garbage out. Uh, God knew if the world was to be populated, man could never handle the pain of childbirth. Apparently, Adam, Adam needed someone to blame his troubles on when God caught him hiding in the garden. And then, of course, when God finished Adam, creating Adam, he stepped back, lifted his head up, and said, I can do better than that. <laughs> so that's good for the ladies. We'll get them another day. My pastor used to say, no work of God is a small work. And uh, I remember on the mission field, starting a church in the Panama Canal Zone. Uh, I remember starting the church with my wife and one other man. And uh, what do you preach? You don't preach to that women are to be submissive. You don't preach to the one guy. I mean, you just, it's just so small. And, uh, you know, I had to clean the church. We got our first building and I had to do the bulletin and all that stuff. And I remember having an evangelist down, and we didn't have as many as I thought. And my pastor, I called him and said, you know, we're so small. He said, no work of God is small. I've never forgotten that. No work of God is small. And whether I've pastored big churches or small churches, they're all equally important in the eyes of God because we're all God's children. And it's wonderful to be part of the family of God. But we recognize God's greatness in this book, in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, because his work is always great. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book originally, were one book, and divided late, years later. You know that as well. Ezra had apparently, or had already returned to the land 12 years earlier. Now it's time for Nehemiah to return. And these are the words of Nehemiah written down by Ezra. Ezra was a scribe and a priest. Now a scribe in those days was really someone dedicated to Scripture and writing. In the New Testament era, the scribes were attorneys, writers, but really more lawyers, and most of them against the Lord Jesus Christ. But Ezra was a priest and a scribe, where Nehemiah was a layman. He was a businessman. And he had been a cupbearer in the Persian king's empire. What is a cupbearer? That is someone who tastes everything they're going to serve to the king and swallows some, so if it's poisoned, uh, they'll be able to save the king. And so he was trusted that much. He was a cupbearer. In fact, when he came to Judea and when he came to build the walls, he was made governor of the whole Judean area. And so we realized he was a trusted man. We know Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem in 587, knocked the walls down. Now in 444 B.C., Nehemiah is going to rebuild them. In 1970, excavation was done, and they found 23 feet wide walls, uh, which we believe were the walls that Nehemiah had built. Isn't that something? And these massive walls around cities were really, really something. And, I, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to have been there to see these massive walls. They had a ramp on the inside so chariots could go up on the wall, and they had houses on the wall. We know Rahab lived on the wall. And these were just really fantastic places. And uh, Nehemiah would then build these walls. Uh, 
And uh, Haggai and Zechariah had preached that this work needed to be done. And so now they're motivated by the prophets preaching to build the wall. Chapter 4 and verse 19, we'll read that. If you'll stand, I know it's a custom here to stand. I like you to stand. It wakes you up before I put you back to sleep, right? And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one far from another. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. That, Lord, will glean something to apply to our life. We're not building a wall today, Lord, but we're building lives. But each person here has a different problem, a different challenge, a different issue. And I know the Holy Spirit can speak to them about that issue. Even if I'm not preaching about that issue, you can convict, you can encourage, you can do it all because you're the God of all. So we ask you to bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Fifteen years had passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. But when they started building, they built the walls around the city in just 52 days. I mean, it was a frenzy of activity. Uh, 52 days. And after the wall was finished, Ezra read to the people the law, the entire law. And it took them half a day. Could you imagine in church if we read the entire Pentateuch, the five books, Pentateuch means five, the five books of the law? People would say, man, I'm going to sleep. Or this is certainly to think about times in Israel when they stood and read the law. But I mean, he read the entire Pentateuch to them. And so we're, we're just amazed at how dedicated they were to the covenant and to the covenant God. When they were right with God, they were dedicated to him. Chapter 11 reveals the relocation of the people to the inside of the walls. And that 52 days of building was just a great event. Look at chapter 2 for a moment in verses 18 and 19. Building programs bring out the worst in people oftentimes because the devil's a destroyer. You don't want to build anything that wants to destroy everything. The devil hates the church. He hates the home. He hates the individuals because he's against us. He's the enemy of God, and, and he's our enemy as believers. And so we find here in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the devil uses people. He used people from within and people from the outside. It says here in verse 18, or yeah, verse 18, Then I told them of the land, of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good, good work. But, and that's a word of transition, isn't it? But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, Ammonites, remember, were descendants of Lot by incest, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. Now remember, these three men were all closely connected to Israel. One of them actually lived in the temple as a guest. So you had someone on the inside and someone on the outside attacking the work of God. And, you know, uh, here Nehemiah now is in a position where he has to take a stand. And he does take a stand. I, I like a Christian who stands for what's right. Now it's important for us to remember as we take a stand to take it properly and correctly according to Scripture. I know a lot of Christians that take a stand on something that is good in and of itself, but their stand is not what God would want it to be. 
you know, you have certain things you believe and hold to, and we have certain doctrines. We hate to use the word fundamentalist today because all the wackos out there that call themselves fundamentalists, but we have fundamental doctrines. The virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture, the Trinity that we believe as Christians. And if I met someone who uh, didn't agree with me on maybe the virgin birth, they didn't think it was valid, and I got contentious and got in the flesh and got in an argument and took him outside and socked him or he'd sock me maybe, I would handle that all wrong. Now that's hyperbole. I'm exaggerating. We don't really go that far with it, but we do get in the flesh a lot of times. We think we're right, and we may be right in principle, but we're not right in how we deal with opposition in our lives. You know, my dad was a good dad, but there were times he said to me, I told, well, I'd say, Dad, why? And he'd say, because I told you so. And I was like, that's not sufficient. And I decided one day I'd say to my dad, Dad, could you, is it, do you think it's right for you to say, I told you so? And he'd say, yeah. And I'd say, why do you think it's right? Because I told you so. And, and that's kind of how it went. But he did get better years later in explaining things. But sometimes our communication skills are not very good, and we communicate things in the wrong spirit in the flesh. So here's a challenge for Nehemiah. How do I get all this mess straightened out? My leaders aren't doing right. We've got opposition. How do I deal with this and please my Lord? And I like that he was a righteous man, and he had righteous indignation. You know, the man of God doesn't ask what's popular. Man of God doesn't ask what's profitable. The man of God doesn't ask what's politically correct. The man of God asks what's pleasing to the Lord. What pleases the Lord? I don't care what other Baptist preachers say. I'm not here to pastor, you know, and to impress or please other preachers. I'm here to do what God's called me here to do. And sometimes our pressure comes from within our own, our own circles of Christians. And sometimes pressure comes from our own families, and, and we can't give in to what's popular, what's profitable, profitable, and today all this political correctness. I don't care about political correctness. I want to be sweet and kind, but speak the truth in love. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's right, but he's got to say something. In chapter 5, here's a great cry. The people are calling out for help, and they say to him, you know, there's a famine. We don't have food. And then the, in verse 4, they, they say to him, we're paying all this interest on money we've borrowed, and, and the actual interest was 12%. We learned this from chapter 5. And, of course, that violated the covenant of God, which said don't charge unfair interest. And as believers, we have to be careful personally not to charge people interest when we loan money. In the business world, it's acceptable, but as Christians, loaning money is usually a mistake. I talked about that a few weeks ago. But they were paying this huge interest. And they were slaves, and they had to sell their kids into slavery just to make ends meet, making agreements with, with people on being a slave for a certain amount of time and so you could be provided for. That's how difficult it was. And the people are crying out. Well, why did all that happen? Because there was sin in Israel. That's the reason they went into bondage and slavery to begin with. Sin. So Nehemiah has to find a way to do what's right, and he had to please the Lord. He had to please the Lord. It's challenging. It's challenging, especially when you have to say to people who are the leaders uh, that they're wrong and they're doing the wrong thing. 
Now, by law, every 50 years was a year of jubilee. I, I, I'm amazed. I was asked to preach a conference up a few years ago up in Virginia, West Virginia, and they said, we want you to preach a jubilee for us. And a lot of jubilees. And uh, most people who have jubilees don't even know what a jubilee was. So I went up there and I preached on the jubilee the first Sunday morning. And the pastor and several of the people said, we never knew what the jubilee really was. And every 50 years, they'd free all the slaves. All land would go back to the original owners. And the Jubilee was all about being redeemed and set free. And then uh, it, it, the word 50 is in that word and all that. I'm not going to preach Jubilee this morning. But I don't know how many times churches have Jubilees and you never hear a message on the Jubilee. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to preach on the Jubilee. But here, every 50 years, they knew they'd be redeemed and all that. But who wants to be a slave for 50 years of their life? And they're saying to Nehemiah, this is not right. And in verse 6 here of chapter 5, then I consulted with myself. I like that. I said to myself, self? <laughs> He's talking to himself. He, he, he sat down and he thought about this. He no doubt prayed about it. And he said, I rebuked the nobles. These were the, the political leaders in the land. He said, and nobility was really something in those days. I mean, they had absolute monarchs. And if you worked in the king's empire, you could do about anything you want to, wanted to. And so he says, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Instead of them, the exact usury, that's interest. He said, this is wrong. And I, he, he got a, a great assembly together and he rebuked all of them. Do you know what the Bible says? Elders that sin need to be rebuked before all. The one time that people need to be rebuked publicly is when they're an elder, a leader in a church or an organization. That's tough. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to rebuke anyone today. But we know that's biblical, isn't it? And so he calls them all together. I call this righteous indignation. He was angry, but he didn't sin. Anger in and of itself is not wrong. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. Some things that are going on in our world make me angry. My kids have done things at times that made me angry. And I wasn't always in righteous indignation either. There were times I was angry and I punished them in, in, in anger. I, I apologized to all of them for punishing them in anger at times. And my one son, who was the most mischievous, or mischievous if you'll pronounce it that way, when he was in adult, I said, I want to apologize to you. I've spanked you way more than your brothers. He said, Dad, I deserved every one of them. <laughs> But I knew at times I was angry. You know, when you grab him by the arm and it's not, come here, sweetie pie, it's, you know. I remember years ago I was in church and I was crawling. I don't know why I was doing this. As for, I still remember, crawling under the pews. My sister was kicking me. And when I got home, my dad was not, didn't have really righteous indignation. He was very unhappy with me and he wore me out. He applied the Board of Education to the seat of my britches. And uh, I learned a lesson that church was about reverencing God. And so I, I, I learned from my dad that, you know, sometimes he wasn't always righteous in his indignation, and neither was I. But that's the proper way to handle your, handle your anger. Proverbs 16.32 says, Proverbs 16.32 says this, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Do you know how hard it is to control your anger? 
You just want to explode. And sometimes the anger is fleshly. We, we know that it's a cause of our flesh. Somebody's not driving right or, you know, something. We know that can cause us to be angry. But sometimes we're angry about something and it's legitimate. And what we have to do in both cases is control it with self-control. God, I'm angry right now. Yeah, I never thought of abandoning my kids, but I thought of killing them. <laughs> Help me, God. Help me to not lose my testimony as I confront this situation. You say, Brother Dan, I never get angry. Well, you do have a problem with honesty for sure. <laughs> Some of the easiest going people I've known, I've seen them getting mad, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know they had it in them. You know, I mean, bam, they just blow up. We all get angry from time to time. And whether we handle our anger with words or just passive-aggressive behavior, or we walk away, or we ignore someone because we don't like them because we're angry. We handle it some way, and many times it's wrong. But I like Nehemiah because he handled it correctly. He gathers all these people together, and he rebukes them. And I like how he handles it. He calls this great assembly, and he rebukes them. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 5. And I said, it is not good that ye do Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God? He said, you know, all this stuff you're doing is wrong. You're, you're taking advantage of the poor people. He says to the noble, nobility, the, the rich crowd, you're taking advantage of poor people with a slavery and high interest, and this is wrong. I like how he handled it. He just rebuked them, and he had to rebuke them publicly so others, the Bible says in the New Testament, would fear. He says, ye ought to walk in the fear of our God. In the Septuagint, that's the, the Greek Old Testament, this is the word phobia. He said, you ought to fear God. Do you know what? When you're in sin, you ought to be shaken in your boots. Why? For whom the Lord loveth, he... That's what the New Testament says. He chastens us. And so he says, you ought, you ought to fear God. You ought to fear him. And then he has a little personal testimony. He says in verse 8, I redeemed some people. He said in verse 11, I restored some people. He said in verse 17, I replenished people. He actually um, helped some of them get out of slavery. He helped some of them get back on their feet. He fed some people. He did all the right things. He set a good example. I, I, like, I like about Nehemiah is that he was not only one to speak up, but he was one to set the right example. He set the right example. And then we have here the great work in verse chapter 6. The great work. Now remember, last week we looked at Ezra. He was building the temple. This week we look at Nehemiah. He's building the walls around the city. Different building projects. Completely different scenarios. And, and these, these massive walls, and he built these. But in chapter 6, this great work, it says, Now it came to pass when Sinballat, and Tobiah, and Gershom the Arabian, the rest of our enemies, heard that I had built a wall, that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. I hadn't put the gates on yet, but we built the wall. They opposed me. Something that was said a long time ago, I wrote down and remember that, is that calm seas do not make a skillful sailor. Calm seas do not make a skillful sailor. 
You say, Brother Dan, life is hard and I have trials. It's the only way for you to be able to teach your kid how to deal with trials is to have trials yourself. You understand that? If you want to be a leader and be the pilot of a ship that gets to the right place, then you're going to have to go through trials and teach your kids how to deal with trials because they've observed how you have dealt with trials. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I love James. He's so practical. In chapter 1, verse 3, listen to what James says. You already know the verse. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience is something that I need much more of. Don't you? You do. Everyone needs more patience. I'm not a good... Builder, because I'm not patient. The guys came over yesterday and helped me. It was so kind of them. But when I do a job of construction, you can tell that I do it quickly. Walls aren't necessarily straight. Sheetrock mud is not very smooth. It's really pretty much a disaster, but I'm happy with it. And I just think it's okay. Who cares? And everyone who comes behind me thinks probably, well, if he didn't do such a bad job, I wouldn't have to straighten this whole mess up. But I'm not patient. I have two sons just like me. Not patient. My son Isaiah, he's vice president of a big company. He can afford to just hire someone. He said, Dad, I'm, Dad, you want help over there? Let me just hire some people and send them over. No, son, you're not doing that for me. He'd rather just pay somebody to do it. And another one of my sons, Dad, I don't even attempt stuff like that. I asked my wife to take care of it. Isn't that good? And uh, two of my sons can, can repair and build and do things because they have patience, you know. You know how patient you are when you get behind the wheel of a car, right? Huh? That's, that's a test of patience. A two-year-old is a test of patience, even if they're not yours. You ever been in a grocery store and some poor lady's struggling with a two-year-old and you want to just borrow that kid just for a moment? Say, I'll, I'll take your child to the restroom. And you get them in there and you just want to wear them out. And I've never done that. But I've wanted to. And I thought, how can they take this kid? Well, we all did it at one point in time. And at one point in time, we were the kids crawling under the church pews like you said you did. We all were there once in both, uh, you know, the, the two-year-old and the adult. But here... These guys are opposing him. Now, James 3, verse 12. We know this verse as well. James 3, 12. Actually, James 1, 12. I apologize. James 1, 3 and James 1, 12. And we know this verse as well. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And that word can be translated trials, as it often is in your New Testament. For when he is tried... He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. We go through difficulty, and the test is how we respond to that. And we're actually blessed if we go through difficulty and respond correctly. That's tough, but it's a promise. So here's the opposition. And Nehemiah is going to become a better leader because he's dealt with these kinds of people. You're going to be better in leading your children and teaching the next generation because you've been there and done that. It's like the time I was going to Nashville 
we had all the kids in their car seats, and I was going up to speak. And we were going to go from there to Michigan to see my family. And uh, so I had the car just crammed, packed. I mean, the trunk, you know. Uh, my duffel bag, my wife's six suitcases, and no, I'm joking. She always had more than I did. We had all the kids' stuff. And then I had a bike rack and a couple of bikes. I don't know what would possess me to carry two bikes and a bike rack. And I have a flat tire, you know. And now the patience is tested. You get out, and you have to take the bikes off and empty all that stuff to get to the tire. <laughs> you know, because the tire, you remember in those days, was in the bottom of the trunk. So I get that, all that stuff, it looked like a flea market on the side of the road. I had stuff everywhere. And, and I start to, you know, I get the car jacked up, and then it starts absolutely pouring. I mean pouring. Now, I've got all my stuff getting wet. My wife's wondering when I'm going to get the stuff out of the rain. I'm wondering if she'd just get in the car and let me get the tire changed. And I'm not happy. And so I said, Lord... Help me through this because I want to kill the tire maker or somebody I didn't know who. And I got the tire changed and I packed all the wet stuff back in the car and got the bike rack on and it just stopped raining right when I got in the car. But now I'm all wet with rain and the car is steaming up and I'm driving on to Nashville. And I thought, what a test in patience, you know? No one wants that. And now that I'm 65, I have AAA. See? Come change his tire, and about four hours later, they show up, and they change your tire, and you're on your way. But, you know, life is like that. You know, I've said before, the only time you burn your toast is when you're down to the last two pieces of bread. That's life. And God allows us to be tested all the time to make us what we ought to be so that the next generation can watch us change the tire in a rainstorm, and then when it happens to them, they know how to behave. And I did behave that day. Didn't want to, but I did. Once in a while, I passed the test. But that's what makes us what we are for the sake of the next generation. But when there's a door open, here's a door to build, there's always adversaries, aren't there? No matter what you try to do, there are people against you. I feel at this church, I have a very supportive following here, but I'm certain there's some who would think, He's not the greatest. We could replace him with another. You know, I, I hope you don't. But no matter what we try to do in the Lord, there's always opposition. I don't, haven't had any here. I don't know about any. I'm just joking. But we all understand that. There's always opposition because that's the way the enemy is. He's going to do his best to harm your family, to harm your church, to ruin your work experience because he's a destroyer. And so when there's a door open, you have to realize there are going to be adversaries. What did Paul say? An effectual door is open unto me, but there are what? Many adversaries. Paul, what a great preacher he was. What a great spiritual leader. What a conversion. Can you imagine the joy of his salvation, all the sin he was saved from? I mean, he was killing Christians, giving the orders to kill Christians. He hated Jesus and his followers. And when Jesus confronted him, he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's killing God's children. Did you know when someone persecutes you, they're attacking the Lord? Did you know that? Because you're his child. And, and when someone's good to you, they're blessed because the Lord sees that. Someone's good to his children. That's why when David sinned, he said, against thee, Lord, primarily only have I sinned. Why? 
Because when you sin, it hurts God first and foremost. You hurt other people. You hurt your children, your family, your coworker, but you hurt God. Because that's your Savior, that's your friend, that's your Lord. And the difference in Nehemiah and the people around him is that he feared God more than man. Scripture tells us, fear God more than those who can harm your body because God can harm you for eternity. Fear is one of the wiles of the devil. It's one of the tricks of Satan, fear. So many times we hear a little bit of news or a little problem and fear just hits us and right away we think the worst. The devil puts a thought in our mind that, oh, this here is all going downhill from here. Maybe it's a doctor's report. Maybe it's a financial situation that all of a sudden hits you and you think, oh, no. And fear just overwhelms you. It's one of the wiles of the devil. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9 of Nehemiah. 5, 9. Nehemiah says, you ought you to walk in the fear of our God. And then in verse 15, the last line, he says, I did not... I didn't do it because of the fear of God. We have to fear God. The fear of God should keep us in line. I fear God more than the circumstances of my life. My fear of God is a reverent fear. I know God's not unfair. I know I'm a jerk sometimes, and that's why I fear Him. Look what the enemy tried to do. Chapter 6, verse 9. For they, they, for they all made us afraid. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore he was hired that I should be afraid. Verse 14, my God, think thou upon Tobiah and the Sambal, according to these their works upon the and on the prophetess, Noabiah, and the rest of the prophets, that would have put me in fear. Verse 19, verse 19, also they reported the good deeds before me and uttered my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. One of the wiles of the devil has caused you to fear. Did you know as a believer you have nothing to fear? Huh? Someone said you have nothing to fear except fear itself. You don't need to fear anything but God because God is always in control. That's what I love about God. No matter what comes our way, God's in control. We don't need to fear it. Fear and faith are opposites, and without faith it's impossible to please Him. We notice here, chapter 6, first of all, Sanballat and Tobiah tried to sidetrack them. Said, come to Ano, which is 20 miles away. Let's have a meeting. And four times Nehemiah said, no, I'm not coming. No, I'm not coming. No, I'm not coming. No, I'm not coming. No is a word we don't like to hear sometimes. He said it four times. Then he tried to slander them. He said in verses 5 to 9, I'll ruin you. I'll start rumors amongst the Persians that you're rebellious, and they'll stop you from building then in verses 10 to 14, he's tried to get them to go into the temple. Let's go and meet in the temple, knowing good and well that there's certain parts of the temple they're not supposed to go in. He tried everything to cause them to make mistakes. But Nehemiah stood his ground and remained faithful. Look at verse 15, the last verse we'll look at today. So the wall was finished in 20, in the 20 and fifth day of the month, in 52 days, it goes to say, tells you the month, in 52 days they finished the wall. You know why? 
Nehemiah followed the Lord. He stood for what was right. And he didn't stand in an ugly, mean-spirited way, critical, judgmental way. I am so tired of critical, judgmental Christians. Years ago, I was in a church, and we had some spiritual policemen in the church. They'd go up to people and correct them, tell them what they're doing wrong. They'd tell them how to dress and how to walk and all this stuff and all the things wrong in their life, and then all of a sudden, they fall by the wayside. We don't need that in church. When you judge others, it's because you are insecure because of your own problems and your own failures, and you decide the way to deal with that insecurity is to start pointing fingers, you know. And when you start to criticize and point fingers at others, you're suffering. You need to deal with your own insecurities. Do you know that? Did you know we're all insecure? Think about that for a moment. We're all insecure. Our sufficiency comes from our relationship with God. When I struggle about things in my life, I realize I need to get on my knees and reconnect with heaven because he's in control and I'll feel a lot better about the situation. Instead of looking at my problems, I look at him and he helps me through those problems. Three things in closing. First of all, stick with the stuff. Keep doing the things you've been doing that are right. Keep doing the things you've been doing that are right. Don't quit doing the right thing. I don't know how many people I know that have problems, and the first thing to do is quit church, quit reading their Bible, quit praying, quit calling the Christian friend. They just decide to get away from all that because they're having problems. That's the thing you should do when you're having problems. You know what we should have? A church full of people with problems. I wish all the sinners came here to hear the gospel. And I wish all the backsliders came here who had problems. And I wish all the discouraged people came we could encourage. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Because that's what this is. We're not a bunch of holy rollers here impressing God, I'll tell you that. We're a bunch of people that took the grace of God just to save us and to get us here. I know what I am, and I'm nothing outside of God's grace. And I know the same applies to you. If you're pious and you're holier than the rest of us, forgive us for being real and transparent and take your hypocrisy and go on your way. I don't mean to leave the church, but I'm just saying hypocrisy makes everyone sick except the person who has it. And everybody notices it. Hey, be real. Let people know. The Bible can confess your faults one to another. Not your sins, but your faults. Why do I tell you week after week my struggles so you pray for me? And so you know that just like you get up every morning, I do, and I face the same things you face. Hey, he's the enemy. He tries to destroy. First of all, finish this up. Second of all, finish what God's called you to do. Whether it's to be a good husband or a good wife, finish well. To, to be a good employee, be the best employee. People should say, well, I know that he didn't do it. I know he's a hard worker. He does his job. And third, don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. You know the devil is great at sidetracking. Look what he tried to do with Nehemiah. He tried to sidetrack him. Let's meet over here. Yeah, that's the way he is. He, he, we have a goal. We're driving toward the goal. We're, we're on the way to making the winning basket, and he interferes with it. Years ago, I had a ball, and I was going to the goal with it, and a player from another school just took me out. Just knocked me into the wall. 
And I fell on the floor, and the ref didn't call anything, and my brothers decided they were going to do something about it. You know, that's, that, that's not how we handle adversity, but getting sidetracked. You're about, to, you're about to be victorious, and the devil just tries to knock you down. He tries to discourage you and hinder you. Why? Because he's the enemy. He doesn't care about you. Don't make a bargain with him. He'll never keep his word. You're lost today. Come to the Lord Jesus. He saves. He sure did a good job saving me. And I know many of you, he did a good job in saving you. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I don't know, God, the hearts here, but you do. And if there's anyone here, whether it's a young teenager, an older person, I don't know. And maybe there's someone here that says, well, I've pretended to be a Christian, but I've really never been saved, never been born again, never repented of my sins. Help them to be saved this morning. If there's a child or a teenager, excuse me, just save them, Lord. But Lord, help us to always be willing to admit our wrong. And when the devil discourages us to realize it and get back on our feet, just continue on to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Blessed now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.